Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guess from a title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I am your host, I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh and I do a thing here in the city, it's called the Monument Comedy Walk of Edinburgh and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that's what this podcast is, that's what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about James the Third. Uh, James III, who was arguably the worst of all of the Stuart monarchs, which is really saying something, folks. You know, that is a bit like being the most incompetent member of Boris Johnson's cabinet. No mean feat at all. He's not remembered well, James II, uh, sorry, James III even, although he isn't remembered that well either, to be fair. Um, he's remembered as an unpopular, vindictive, unpleasant Scottish king. He's Scottish history's Richard III. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, that is the, the princes in the tower guy. That is the English king that murdered his nephews in order for him to become king, making him a, a predatory royal uncle even more dangerous than Prince Andrew. James III, he spent heavily on himself and he would eventually be taken down by his own barons and his son. His son and his own barons would be the instrument that led to his miserable and lonely death, which I reckon is the same way that Donald Trump will go out. Well, if, if COVID doesn't take him first, you know, it'll be that, uh, you know that kid he's got that, he, like, that you never see, the one he keeps locked away, like the one that he doesn't want to have sex with, like Baron. We need to talk about Baron. He'll literally be taken out by his baron, who is his son. It'll just be a frenzy while the kids just screaming, Why won't you hug me, Daddy? <laughs> Listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, I mean, this is obviously not the place to start, is it? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not normally as frantic as this. This is basically, however, a, a podcast that is mainly... Tory bashing mixed in with a lot of jobby jokes, right? Uh, if that sounds like your thing, you'll enjoy it. But for the love of God, don't start here. Jesus Christ, go back to the first episode, all right? They all go in chronological order. Um, I don't really talk about anything topical or anything like that. Each podcast will give you a decent bit of background at the one that follows it. So if this is the first time you've tuned in, go back to episode one. Right, okay, so without further ado, folks, here you go. Here's your uh, your podcast all about James III. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! James III's father, James II, he had died on the 3rd of August 1460 during the siege of Roxburgh Castle and the Queen, Marie de Gueldres, who was the most exotic sounding woman in Scotland right up until Charlene Spiteri, and even then Charlene Spiteri, she isn't that exotic sounding, do you know what I mean, like what, she's from Texas, thank you very much. Uh, anyway, the, the the Queen, she urged the siege of Roxburgh Castle to continue, and it was a success. The castle fell to the Scots five days later. Now, Marie de Gueldre, she was lively, talented, um, and she was a capable queen. And when the, the nine-year-old Prince James, the Duke of Rothsey, was crowned King of Scotland at Kelso Abbey a week after his father's death on Sunday the 10th of August 1460, Marie de Gueldre was made uh, guardian of the King's person, which basically meant it was her job to look after her son, which I presumed would have been covered by our other title of mum, but nonetheless. Uh, and a, a council of bishops and nobles was set up to help run the country. And it was headed up by Bishop William Kennedy, who had been the most uh, respected of James II's advisors. William Kennedy, he founded the, the famous St. Salvatore College in St. Andrews. This is a really well-known spot in St. Andrews. Um, not just because it's the spot where... Will's fingered Kate for the first time. Uh, yeah, I just said that, that's right. Uh, it's also the spot where the Protestant reformer Patrick Hamilton was burned alive in 1528 for refusing to 
wear a poppy. And Bishop Kennedy, he was a brilliant scholar and an experienced advisor, but he had a weakness for opulence and shows of ostentatious wealth, not in keeping with the Catholic Church at all. I know, right? Kennedy had a huge ship built for himself called the Salvatore. It weighed more than 500 tons and was known as uh, it was known as the Bishop's Barge in Scotland, or that ship called Lack of Dignity. He had a massive, pointless yacht, which made William Kennedy a kind of mix of royalty and Russian oligarch. He was a bit like Roman Abramovich and the Queen, who's, incidentally, the Queen's pointless yacht in Edinburgh is the number one rated tourist attraction in the UK, if you're to believe the adverts on the side of Edinburgh's buses. Anyway, although, to be fair, the only people likely to actually visit the Royal Yacht Britannia are the sort of daft pricks likely to believe utter bullshit written on the sides of buses anyway. Now, the Queen, she felt the need to protect the young James III from William Kennedy, presumably because James was a nine-year-old boy and William Kennedy was, well, he was a bishop, wasn't he? That's not traditionally a very good mix, that one. But Edith Gueldres was very active in the English Civil War, the War of the Roses, um, which was a war fought between two royal families in England, the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. And um, Marie de Gueldres, she offered sanctuary to fleeing Lancastrians when the Yorkists came to power in 1460. Uh, she offered sanctuary to Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou, and then in 1461 to Henry VI and their son, Prince Edward, as well. And in return for sanctuary, uh, Berwick was ceded back to Scotland and they promised to give Carlisle back to the Scottish if they successfully managed to overthrow the Yorkist government. Now, from sanctuary in Scotland, Margaret of Anjou travelled three times to France to gain French support to take on Edward IV, and each time she failed pretty miser miserably. Now, William Kennedy, in contrast to M Marie de Gueldres, he had Yorkist sympathies, and he wanted an alliance with the Yorkist king Edward IV. And it wasn't just politics where Kennedy and the Queen did not see eye to eye. William Kennedy didn't approve of Marie de Gueldres's kind of Tommy Sheridan-style personal life. Marie de Gueldres, she had an affair with the Lancastrian Duke of Somerset while he was exiled in Scotland and was openly living with a married man, Adam Hepburn, the Master of Hales. It was something of a royal scandal. Now listen, this was back in the days when royal scandals involved, you know, like having affairs and stuff like that. You know, not, not like billionaire islands, human trafficking and having sex with minors, you know, like, like today's royal scandal. Now, but we eventually switched their support to the Yorkists, and she even discussed the possibility of a marriage to Edward IV. But Marie died before her dynastic plans could take hold. To could take hold, sorry. She died in December 1463, and this allowed William Kennedy to take full control of the governance of the kingdom. And Kennedy, he negotiated a truce with the English Yorkist government and accepted a pension from Edward IV on the guarantee that Henry VI would never be allowed into Scotland again. Kennedy, he was living off of handouts from the English, a bit like Baroness Ruth Davidson in the old House of Lords, I suppose. And then he died in May 1465, having achieved blessed relief from English interference in Scotland, for the immediate future at least. James was 13 years old when Kennedy died, which didn't leave much time for another faction to take control of the king's person before he reached his majority and quickly became too old for Prince Andrew. And just as the Livingstons and Crichtons had opportunistically swooped in to seize power during the minority of James II, now another opportunistic Scottish family on the fringes of the Scottish aristocracy stepped into the power vacuum created by the deaths of Marie de Gueldres and William Kennedy, the Boyds of Kilmarnock, which is very surprising because it is very rare for Boyd of Kilmarnock to ever step outside of the Six Yarn Box. 
In July 1466, the 14-year-old James III, he was hunting near Linlithgow Palace when he was seized by Robert Lord Boyd of Kilmarnock and taken to Edinburgh Castle, where the governor of the castle was his brother Alexander Boyd, who was also the chamberlain of the royal household and James III's military instructor, who presumably taught him not to stand next to a lit cannon like his dad had done. And at a parliament in October 1466 in Edinburgh, James III was somehow induced to say that all of these events occurred with his consent and Parliament named Robert Lord Boyd as governor of the king's person and keeper of the fortress of the kingdom. The Boyd's time on the political stage was short-lived and we can only hope that the Boyd punditry is equally as short-lived as well. James's resentment of the Boyds was growing with every inverted commas Chris Boyd analysis. Um, and as he approached... The beginning of his personal rule, which occurred around the time of his marriage to the Princess of Norway, stroke Denmark, Margaret, in July 1469, James III was becoming increasingly, increasingly resentful of the Boyds. And it was Thomas Boyd, the Earl of Arran, who had sailed to Denmark to escort the Princess Margaret to Scotland for the wedding. And when the Scots vessels arrived at Leith, Arran was met by his wife Mary, James III's sister, who warned him of James's growing displeasure. Boyd immediately turned tail and sailed back to Denmark, escaping to a, a Danish hellscape of immaculate public services, long life expectancy and £12 pints. And it had been a sensible move. Because in November 1469, Parliament heard charges of treason against the Boyds. But with Thomas Boyd in exile in Denmark and Robert Lord Boyd, who had uh, fled to England, the sins of the family fell to Sir Alexander Boyd, the keeper of Edinburgh Castle, who was executed for having traitorously abducted the king from Linlithgow on the 9th of July 1466. The Boyd's lands were forfeited to the crown, giving James III considerable added income. James's marriage to Margaret on the 10th of July 1469 meant that Scotland finally gained the territories that make up Scotland as we know it today because through the marriage, Scotland got back Orkney and Shetland. Now, Orkney and Shetland, who anyone, for anyone who doesn't know, they're kind of like Scotland's Falkland Islands in that they're really, really far away. It's really cold there and nobody really knows why we make such a big deal about keeping ahead of them, you know? Orkney is just off the north coast of Scotland and uh, Shetland is contained within a wee rectangular box next to it. Uh, look out for it next time you're watching the weather. It's called the Rectangle of Shetland. It's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle except if you if you sail through the Shetland Rectangle they'll just set fire to your ship. You know, they love to do that. Now Orkney and Shetland had been part of Norway since the, the Viking invasions of Scotland in the late 8th century and then in 1266 when Alexander III signed the Treaty of Perth it saw the Western Isles return to Scotland but it secured Orkney and Shetland as possessions of the Norwegian crown and as part of the Treaty of Perth Scotland had to pay had to pay the annual of Norway as it became known in Scotland and this was a yearly repayment to Norway in return for the Western Isles but the payments had rarely been made and they stopped altogether after 1426 because it was considered completely unreasonable to raise taxes in one country and send them to another for no real benefit for no other discernible reason other than to keep a foreign monarch happy or a union together you know and the Northern Isles, they'd become heavily Scottishized. The Islanders, they'd become accustomed to square sausage and iron brew, whiskey, that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, like smelly old fermenting fish in a box, you can. And the islands were more Scottish than Norwegian, particularly since the, the Union of Kalmar in 1397, in which Norway became part of a, a triple monarchy, which comprised of Norway, Denmark, and more reluctantly Sweden. And then on the 8th of September, 1468, 
Um, in the marriage treaty in Copenhagen between Margaret and James, it was agreed that Margaret would receive Linlithgow Palace in Dune Castle and Scotland would stop paying the annual in Norway. And as part of Margaret's dowry, Orkney and Shetland were mortgaged. Now, the King of Denmark, stroke Norway, likely intended to redeem the islands, but in 1472, an Act of Parliament officially annexed the islands and united them to Scotland. And right up until the 18th century, Danish kings would try and open negotiations over the return of Orkney and Shetland to Norway. But the Scots merely ignored them and just refused to discuss the matter. A bit like the UK government ignoring Scotland's right to decide its own future through a referendum. You know, just ignore it and pretend it's not happening. So in July 1469... The marriage between James III and Margaret secured the return of Orkney and Shetland to Scotland and the islands, they've remained a part of Scotland ever since, although they do hold on to a lot of their, their Norse traditions in Orkney and Shetland, mainly their bizarre accents. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if that is genuinely what the Vikings sounded like, folks, then they really were not as scary as everyone makes them out to be, you know? Oh, I've just come to do some raping and pillaging, so I am. I'll be out your hair in no time at all. I'm just going to burn the place down. There'll be no bother at all. I'll be, I'll be out your hair in ten minutes or so. James III began his personal rule around the time of his marriage to Margaret at the age of 18. And on beginning his reign, the kingdom had peace with England thanks to the truce that had been achieved by Bishop Kennedy with the English Yorkist government. Now, there may have been peace between Scotland and England, but in England, the War of the Roses had flared up again. And in August 1469, the Kingmaker, the Earl of Warwick, he was known as the Kingmaker because because um, he was instrumental in the deposition of two kings, Henry VI and Edward IV. The kingmaker, the Earl of... Incidentally, that's also how uh, Prince William refers to his Bobby as well, the kingmaker. Well, he uh, he fell out with Richard IV over his uh, foreign policy and his choice of wife after he decided to marry a descendant of Meghan Markle's, apparently. So Warwick, he switched his support from the Yorkists back to the Lancastrians once again. And... In, uh, in August 1469, Warwick took Edward IV prisoner, but Edward escaped, and so Warwick, he sailed to France. He made an alliance with Margaret of Anjou. The two raised an army and launched a successful rebellion in England in September 1470. Henry VI was released from prison, restored to the throne, and Edward IV had to escape to France. Edward IV then returned with an army from Burgundy in March 1471, defeated the Lancastrian forces at Barnet on the 14th of April 1471, a battle in which Warwick was killed, and he followed that up with another victory over the Lancastrians in Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire on the 4th of May 1471. And in that battle, Prince Edward, Henry VI, and Margaret of Anjou's son was killed, and Margaret of Anjou was captured. The same night the battle had been fought, Edward returned to London and had Henry VI executed. Now Henry VI, <clears throat> if you remember from the previous podcast, I said he was prone to states of insanity and would go into a catatonic state for a catatonic state, sorry, for months upon end. Edward IV essentially had a, a, me a mentally ill man executed. So pretty much just like 90% of the people who are on death row in America, you know. And after he had had Brendan Darcy executed, Edward IV then reigned reigned uninterrupted until his death in 1483. Margaret of Anjou, she was ransomed by Louis XI and she returned to France in 1482. James III wanted to ensure good relations with Yorkist England, so when Margaret gave birth to a son, the future James IV, in March 1473, it was arranged that Prince James would marry Edward IV's daughter Lady Cecilia. Edward IV agreed as it ensured peace with his northern neighbour, allowing him to concentrate on a war with France. Edward invaded France in July 
1475, but called the invasion off in return for a huge pension from Louis XI. In Scotland, James's cozying up to the English, it didn't go down particularly well. Sucking up to the opposition would end up costing him dearly, a bit like the, the Lib Dems in a coalition government or Labour and the Better Together campaign. Tensions were running particularly high with the Borders families, for whom war with England was just a way of life. James, he was criticised not only for cozying up to the English, but for his lack of interest in government and the administration of justice. He rarely left Edinburgh, seldom travelling to other boroughs in his kingdom, Edinburgh being, Edinburgh being his kind of Maro Lago. He was very greedy as well, he'd amass money, and unlike his successors who would contribute to Scotland's Renaissance arts and architecture, James III spent heavily on himself using money to buy extravagant ornaments and clothing for him and the Queen at a time when the country was suffering famine and inflation. James's increasing demand for money to fund his extravagant lifestyle was not endearing him to his subjects. But I mean, thankfully, the royal family do not engage in such opulence these days. Do you know what I mean? Especially in a time of desperate financial, public health and economic meltdown. You know, like they'd never spend tens of thousands uh, so that a paedophile could go and travel and watch a golf tournament, you know. And they would never ask for a bailout from the taxpayer, despite the fact that the Queen is the largest landowner in the world with 25% of the £1.9 billion raised through the Crown Estate going directly to the monarchy. Do you know what I mean? They would never ever do something like that at this time in the 21st century. But to increase his royal revenues, James, he, uh, he debased coins using cheaper copper coins that had a higher face value. These coins, they were called black money and the fact that they had the king's actual face on them certainly didn't help in the popularity stakes. And thus, James III, he started the trend of people getting upset when they received Scottish money. If James's greed is what was making him unpopular with the subjects, it was his associations with inverted commas lowborns or familiars, as James referred to them, that angered his nobles. These were men who crossed the class divide, an absolute no-no in the 15th century or in a Tory government cabinet. Examples of James's familiars were William Roger, an, uh, an accomplished musician, William Skeeves, who was a shirt maker who had become Archbishop of, Gla uh, of uh, St Andrews. Sorry, amazing, isn't it? Like, wouldn't it be amazing if a shirt maker rose to the position of Archbishop of St Andrews in the 21st century? Although, to be fair, there's nothing the Catholic Church would like more than a nine year old Taiwanese boy in a church, would they? Now, the most notorious of all of James III's familiars was a stonemason called Thomas Cochrane. Cochrane became James III's closest advisor, and it was Cochrane whom the nobles had the most issue with. He had influence over matters of state, he controlled access to James III, and he charged heavily for the privilege of an audience with the king. And further issue was taken with the hangers on to James's familiars. So, for example, James had a tailor, a shoemaker, astrologer, and a fencing master in notable positions with extensive lands and baronies. A tailor, a shoemaker, an astrologer, and a fencing master. It's hardly the scheme, I know, but the nobility, they did not appreciate having to go through Cochrane and the familiars to get to the king, and so they turned to James III's brothers, Alexander the Duke of Albany and John the Earl of Mar, for firm governance. But Cochrane, he was apparently in the king's ear, turning, going full Yoko Ono and turning the king against his brothers. James had his brothers arrested sometime in 1479 and 1480. John the Earl of Mar, he died in suspicious circumstances. He was found bled to death in a bathtub in Craigmiller Castle in Edinburgh. It's said that he was practising witchcraft against the monarchy, which is the exact same reason why Marvin Andrews had to leave Rangers. 
And Mar's older brother, Alexander the Duke of Albany, he was locked in Edinburgh Castle, but he managed to pull off a, a daring escape. He received two flagons of wine, and in one there was a length of rope with a note informing Albany of the king's intention to have him executed the next day. Alexander invited his guards in to drink the wine with them, and when they were suitably drunk, he stabbed them, threw their bodies in the fire, and used the length of the length of rope to escape out of the window, which to be fair is all pretty standard stuff for a house party in Scotland. Albany fled to Dunbar where he garrisoned the castle, but when James launched a successful siege, Albany was forced to flee to France, then later to England, where he would side with Edward IV and launch an invasion against James III in 1482. In 1474, James III had arranged for the young Prince James to marry Edward IV's daughter Lady Cecilia the following year. Edward IV, he'd been paying a dowry ever since, and in 1480, when the marriage still hadn't, hadn't taken place, he demanded that Prince James be sent to England for the wedding. And there had been marital controversy a year earlier as well, when James had arranged for his younger sister Margaret to marry Edward IV's brother-in-law. But the marriage was called off when it turned out that Margaret was already pregnant to another man. Your standard Dundee wedding, basically. Skirmishes broke out in the borders as a result, and in 1480, Edward IV demanded the return of Berwick, which had been given to the Scots by the Lancastrians. While this was going on, the Duke of Albany was in England, gathering support for an invasion to overthrow his brother. He reached an agreement with Edward IV that should there be an English invasion of Scotland, he would become a client king of Edward IV, and he would hand Berwick and most of southern Scotland over to England. Edward IV gathered an invasion force that was he- an invasion force that was headed up by his brother Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III. James III, in response, summoned an army, an army that would require the support of his disenfranchised nobles, the most powerful of whom were his half uncles, John Stuart, the Earl of Athol, James Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, and Andrew Stuart, the Bishop of Marie. James III called to arms would trigger a family conspiracy that is said even. Queen Margaret was in on. In July 1482, the Scots army marched south to Lauder in the borders. The huge English invading force had already crossed the border and taken Berwick. The Scottish nobles, they gathered at Lauder Kirk, where it was decided an ultimatum would be put to James III. Either their familiars were removed from the army, Thomas Cochrane, for example, was in position as commander of the artillery, or they would refuse to fight. When James III refused to remove his familiars, the lords invited Cochrane to meet with them at the Kirk. When he arrived, they arrested him and snatched five of the other familiars and had them hanged over the Lauder Bridge. And instead of facing the invading English army, the lords had James arrested and marched back to Edinburgh where the king was locked up in Edinburgh Castle by his own army. And while this was going on, the English army swept into Edinburgh unopposed like a Covid-carrying passenger getting off a plane at Edinburgh Airport. It has been suggested that the Scottish nobles, even the Queen, had been in tow with the English, with the Duke of Albany the entire time. But the English army, it was faced with something of a quandary. The king that they had come to depose, he was now locked up in Edinburgh Castle by his own men. And they didn't have the siege equipment, nor the necessary funds to launch a successful siege of Edinburgh Castle. So Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, he secured a repayment of Edward's dowry and he returned to England, stopping only to besiege Berwick Castle and take the town, which has remained a part of England ever since. Alexander, the Duke of Albany, had uh, accompanied this English force into Scotland and during the foray into Scotland, he'd had a change of heart. He knew he was never actually likely to become king himself. I mean, James III, he, he had heirs. 
Uh, Albany, he likely had designs on deposing James III and making himself regent to the young Prince James, the Duke of Rossi. Basically, he knew he had no chance of being king and just wanted to be around the children, just like Prince Andrew, basically. And after negotiations that involved the Queen in Stirling Castle and were centred mostly around the heir Prince James... James III was released from Edinburgh Castle and as unlikely as it may seem, he was actually reconciled with Albany. Albany was appointed King's Lieutenant General. But the truce between the brothers didn't last long. Shortly after James III's release, Albany was caught up in another conspiracy with England and he was forced to flee Scotland in 1483. He then made a completely unrealistic kind of George Galloway-style political return in 1484, which ended up with him being brutally beaten up at a fair in Dumfries after which he finally gave up left Scotland for good he fled to France where he was eventually killed in 1485 after being injured in a tournament which like being killed in a tournament is also the most likely means in which Andy Murray will likely pop his mortal coil Edward IV died in April 1483 and after his death there was turmoil in England when the throne was usurped by his brother Richard who became Richard III now the chaos ensuing south of the border allowed James III to take back Dunbar Castle in 1485 ending its long held English occupation. In the same year, Henry Tudor, he defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and became Henry VII. And Henry VII, he immediately negotiated a 15-year truce with the Scots, which left James III on the firmest footing he had enjoyed throughout his entire reign. Now, James may have had peace with England, but his problems with his nobles continued. James had been living apart from his wife for some time. Margaret, she died at Stirling Castle at the age of 30 years old in July 1486. And Margaret, she had won the hearts of the nation. There was talk of her being canonised and rumours, almost certainly untrue, that the Queen had been poisoned by one of James III's advisors. Now, these rumours about James having his wife, his Queen, killed were almost certainly untrue. It didn't stop the Sun from publishing them, obviously. But James, he had three sons. There was his heir, James the Duke of Rothsey, who was 13 when his mother, who had been gathering, or putting lots of time and effort into gathering support for her son, died. And there was his, uh, his middle son, James the Marcus of Ormond and the Duke of Ross. Uh, this sums up James III perfectly, by the way. Only James III could name his eldest and middle child James. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and then there was his youngest son, uh, his youngest son, John, the Earl of Mar. Now, James III, he favoured his middle son, which I know is rare because that's normally the one that parents give the fewest fucks about. And he uh, he tried to arrange a marriage for his uh, his middle son to Edward IV's daughter, as well as a marriage for himself to Edward's widow, Elizabeth Woodville. Now, none of these quite farcical marriage proposals came to anything. But for the young Prince James, as in the Duke of Rossi, the heir to the throne... It was the final indication that he was now on his own. He wasn't going to be supported by his father and James started to fear for his life. So on the 2nd of February 1488, the 15-year-old Prince James, heir to the throne of Scotland, rode out from Stirling Castle without the king's knowledge and went into hiding. Now for the anti-royal faction, this was exactly what they needed. They now had a figurehead for a rebellion against James III, his own son, the Prince James at the beginning of 1488, James III started spending lavishly trying to gain support for an army to put down the, rebel, the rebels who supported his son, but he knew he was losing control of the kingdom. So in June 1488, he left Edinburgh Castle with what followers he could amass, and he headed to Stirling, where Prince James had returned. And his plan was simple, seize the prince and thus end the rebellion. He would 
scale Sterling Castle, dressed as Banana Man, and unfurl his father's for justice bother. But the problem was, the prince had once again escaped Stirling Castle, and he uh, had joined up with the main rebel army in the borders. The army then marched north to meet James III's supporters at Stirling. And on the 11th of June 1488, the two sides met somewhere between the Bannockburn and the Sochiburn, the Battle of Sochiburn and Stirling. Now the rebels, they had a larger force than the king, and the battle was it was more a kind of series of victorious skirmishes for the rebels than it was an all-round decisive victory in battle. But when it became clear that he was losing, James III, he mounted a horse and he rode towards the safety of his waiting ship on the River Forth. And while making his way back to the ship, James attempted to jump the Bannockburn and he was thrown from his horse. Now the miller of the Bannockburn mill and his wife found the king, took him into their barn and when they asked who he was, James replied, I was your king this day at morn which is a wankier introduction than James Bond, for Christ's sake. And the story goes that James asked for a priest. So the miller's wife went out to try and find one, and a man claiming to be a priest then entered the barn and stabbed the king to death. Although another version of the story says that it was a group of pursuing knights who then burst into the barn and stabbed the king to death. Either way, the culprit was never found, and James, he was found stabbed to death in the barn of the mill at the Bannockburn. And James III's death... It would mark the end of the Middle Ages in Scotland and it ushered in the Renaissance through his son, King James IV, who was crowned at Scuden on the 26th of June, 1488, aged only 15 years old. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the the first episode of the podcast that you've listened to then check out some other ones if you like this one you'll like the rest it's the same thing you know um you can follow me on social media at montebank tours on uh, on instagram and facebook and you can actually contribute to the montebank history of scotland series um you can buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee if you've listened to a few episodes if you've enjoyed them just go on to buymeacoffee.com i'm on there at montebank history of scotland and if you're a regular listener you can become a, a patron of the podcast at patreon.com again you can give me the equivalent of the the price of a cup of coffee every month. It's all massively, massively appreciated, folks. And what I uh, what I try to do is each week I try to raise enough money through my buy me a coffee and Patreon accounts to send someone deserving a bottle of malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to match what I've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. Now today's episode is the only exception to this rule. Because James III wasn't a particularly good king, and I don't think that I can conceivably attach a malt brand to him. But James III, he did, to to give him credit, he involved regular people in his court and gave them important positions. And so, I would like to recommend a kind of good everyday drinking whiskey, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to match today's podcast with a blended whiskey. Now, you might not know the difference between malt whiskey and blended whiskey, right? So basically, a malt whiskey is consisted, it consists of 100% malted barley, right? That is that is what is in that bottle. A blended whiskey will be at least 50% a grain whiskey, or it'll be 50% grain whiskey, which basically means it's made from usually corn, rye, or wheat. And then the rest of that bottle or the rest of that recipe is made up of a mix of different malts from different distilleries. Now, if you're the sort of person that spends a lot of money on something like, say, Johnny Walker Black Label, then in my opinion, you'd be better served to spend that money on malt whiskey, right? Because a blend, 
the 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 more high end blend, so stuff like your Johnny Walkers, all that is all that means is that they have a higher percentage of malted whiskies in their mix, so in their kind of recipe. So instead of spending fifty pound fifty pound plus on a bottle that is going to be have a higher percentage of malt whiskey, why not spend that money on something that's going to be one hundred percent malt whiskey? If you know what I mean. Now that's not to say that these malt that these whiskies are not delicious, that they're not great, because some of them are absolutely fantastic, right? And the one that I would like to recommend to you, lovely people, is Gordon Graham's Black Bottle, right? So you can pick up a bottle of Black Bottle at your supermarket for fifteen twenty quid, and it is by far and away the best of all the it is the whiskey that I drink more than any other because it's like a, it's your like your your match of the day whiskey you know it's like watching Netflix whiskey that is the sort of because you, you're you're not going to have your expensive kind of malt whiskey every single week and Black Bottle is by far and away the most delicious it's rich it's smoky it's spicy you need to stop drinking your grouses and your white and mercais you need to spot stop spending loads of money on Johnny Walker buy good malts instead of that and if you're looking for a nice blend get yourself a bottle of Black Bottle. And if you would like to, to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Black Bottle, all you need to do is uh, send me a wee DM on social media. Uh, you can send me an email. Give me a wee bit of money. So contribute on the Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts and I choose someone at random and I send them a bottle of Black Bottle. That's how it works. Right, anyway, so there you go. There's my wee rant about blended whiskies and, bla- and Black Bottle for you there. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, folks. Please give it a wee rate and review all the stuff that people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. And yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope to, to see you all next time. Cheerio. Bye-bye.